today we are going to be cutting through all the noise that is surrounding the Hamas-Israel conflict and find out what is going on historically and of course biblically. Hey, you're listening to the Outside of Sunday podcast. Is your faith stuck on Sunday? Christianity was never meant to be constrained to a weekly church service. I'm Krista and I'm here to help and encourage you to live your faith outside of Sunday. Alright, as we all know, there is a war going on and while a temporary ceasefire has or very soon will be happening, Israel has responded militarily to the absolutely horrific murder, brutalization, raping and kidnapping of their civilians. But that is not the focus of our episode today mainly because I would just cry my way through that and you're not here for that. Um, So what I think we should do as Christians, I think we need to have a certain amount of context to actually understand what is going on so that we are able to pray effectively and also so that we can have discernment around all the social media posts and news reports coming out of the Israel and Palestinian conflict. While it's not a conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. It's a conflict between Israel and Hamas. So to start, we need a brief biblical history lesson to understand why the Palestinians and Israelis are in conflict at all. This will clear up a lot of the questions surrounding the subject. Okay, so the Bible is not just the word of God. It is also an extremely reliable historical document. And through the comprehensive genealogies and historical counts recorded in the Bible, we know that the Jewish people came from the line of Abraham and his wife, Sarah, continued by their son, Isaac. And we also know that the Arab people, this includes the Palestinian people, come from the line of Ishmael. Ishmael was Abraham and Hagar's son, Hagar was Abraham's wife, Sarah's maid servant. So all the way back in Genesis, God set Abraham apart. He called him to leave his homeland and go to a place that he would show him. God also promised Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age. But Sarah grew impatient, waiting for the promised son. It was 25 years before Isaac was born after the initial promise. So Sarah grew very impatient and she told her husband to lay with her maidservant Hagar, who then became pregnant and bore Ishmael. Now, Abraham and Sarah actually thought that this son could be the fulfillment of the promised son that God had promised them. They didn't actually believe that Sarah could have a child at all. They thought it was impossible. She was in her 90s, by the way, so it does seem pretty impossible. She was in her 90s and she no longer had her period. So how was that even going to happen? It seemed impossible. So in their mind, this could be the answer to God's promise for a son. They weren't expecting Sarah to get pregnant. But it wasn't through Hagar and Abraham that God's promise was made. Let's read now in Genesis 17 verses 17 to 20. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, that was her name before she was renamed Sarah. Oh, well, I'm about to say that. So (laughs) as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and surely will give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. 
I will my I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Now, although Ishmael wasn't the recipient of the covenant between God and Abraham, he is promised to be blessed by God and become a great nation. And so it's through these lines, the lines of these half brothers, that conflict exists today and has existed for many years in the past as well. The Arabs and the Jews. Now, when did the Israelites receive the land promised to them by God? It was in 1250 B.C., that the descendants of Abraham and Isaac arrived in the promised land. To give you a bit of biblical context, that was 40 years after God delivered the Jews from Pharaoh in Egypt. Israel became not just a people, a great people, but a nation, first under judges and then under a succession of kings for generations. Since then, Israel has been conquered by foreign nations and recaptured for the Jewish people off and on approximately 22 times. But every time, even when they were conquered, the Jews remained living in the land of Israel and Judea. Sometimes there were a lot of Jews living in the land and sometimes the number of Jews were minuscule because of exile and intense persecution. All right, let's take a breath there because I want you to understand something. I am not a historian or a political journalist of any kind, but I do take this very seriously. Every time I record a podcast episode, I'm aware of the responsibility of saying a thing out there for everyone to hear and on the internet and all of that. So all of the information I'm presenting to you today, I gathered from a lot of online resources, different ones. So like the Encyclopedia of Britannica, news news articles, the UN website. I watched a bunch of videos and interviews with historians. It's taken me weeks to prepare this episode, and in spite of all of that, there is a chance that I could still get something wrong, so I hope you will give me grace for any inconsistencies. Let's carry on now. So when exactly among the various conquerings of Israel did the Arab people arrive in the land? Now, I could just give you a date, but that's just a number, so let me give you some context of the timeline, and to do that, I think we're going to pick up the historical timeline from when the Bible leaves off. So this is after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, here we go. After Jesus' resurrection and the events of the Old Test- of the New Testament, sorry, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, 70 years AD. Then in one 35 AD, Jerusalem was rebuilt as a Roman city and they named the land Palestine. The renaming of the land was a Roman slight or like an insult to the Jewish people because the name Palestine comes from the word Philistine, which is, as you know, the historic enemy of the Jews. So the Romans renamed the land Palestine as an insult to the Jewish people. There were still Jews living in the land, now called Palestine, but the Romans ruled it. Around 500 uh, 500 years later, in 632 AD, the founder of Islam, a man called Muhammad, you might have heard of him, he died. And then five years later, the land of Israel, now called Palestine, was attacked and conquered by an army of Arab Muslims. This is when the Arab people first established themselves in Palestine. 
400 or so years later, in 1099 AD, the Crusaders, whose goal was to recover the Holy Land from the Arabs, captured Jerusalem. A hundred years later, it was captured by an Egyptian sultan. The Crusaders briefly got Jerusalem back and then the Arab Muslims conquered it again. Um, but then in 1517, the Ottoman Empire, which is what you would understand it as like the Turkish Empire, um, they captured Jerusalem and they held the land for about 400 years. Now, that brings us up to a century we are much more familiar with, the 20th century, specifically 1917. The Ottoman Empire fell at the end of World War I, so they were on the side of Germany. And as the empire was falling, it ceded legal authority of the land of Palestine, all of Israel and the Holy Land, to what was called the League of Nations. Now that's called the UN or the United Nations. So the League of Nations then gave it to Britain with a directive to make a Jewish national home. So that's all of Jordan, Israel, the West Bank and Gaza. Britain then gave the job back to the League of Nations, who divided the land, giving the eastern part of Jordan to the Arab people and setting aside the rest for a Jewish national home, a two-state solution. The Jewish leaders accepted this. The Arab leaders rejected this. Now, following Britain giving the land for a Jewish national home, war broke out in 1948-49 to when Israel declared itself an independent state. Protesting this move, five Arab countries, that's Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon and Syria, attacked Israel. The conflict ended with Israel gaining considerable territory, so it kind of backfired there. Now, interestingly, at this point, there was no such thing as a Palestinian. The people living in the land of Palestine were just known as Arabs, if they were Arab people. We're talking about the 1940s here. It wasn't actually until the 1960s that the Palestinian nationality was created. There had never been a unique Palestinian government, kingdom or empire. Palestinian was a term created by the PLO, which is the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And just so you know, I'm not making that up. Let me just quote something for you. In 1979, oh, sorry, in 1977, Dutch newspaper Troel I'm probably saying that wrong, sorry, published an interview with PLO Executive Committee member Zahir Moussin. Zahir said this, and I quote, The Palestinian people do not exist. The creation of a Palestinian state is only a means for continuing our struggle against the state of Israel for Arab unity. Only for political and tactical reasons do we speak today about the existence of a Palestinian people. Since Arab national interests demand that we posit the existence of a distinct Palestinian people to oppose Zionism. So it's a political thing. Um, nevertheless, in 1974, the UN recognised the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination, national independence and sovereignty in Palestine. So the conflict has existed since the land divide at the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Well done. We got there, guys. But I know what you're thinking now. Have there been any attempts at peace? Why doesn't Israel just come to the table? Come on, just give Palest the Palestinians a bigger chunk of the land and make a two-state solu solution that works for everyone. And the thing with that is, there actually have been many attempts at peace between Israel and Palestine. And over the years, every one of the peace deals that has been proposed, all of which ended in Israel giving a lot more land to the Palestinians, 
every proposed peace deal has been accepted by Israel and rejected by the Palestinian leaders with no counter offer. No counter offer. And in 2005, after years of conflict, Israel gave up the West Bank and Gaza to Palestine in an effort to achieve peace. Israel completely disengaged from the Gaza Strip, uprooting its citizens and settlements in the region. And this was just yeah, another attempt at peace. Since 2005, uh, until war was declared earlier, um, you know, with the conflict on October 7th, there have been no Jews and no IDF presence in what then became Palestinian territory. We're doing good. (laughs) I hope you're still with me, all of these dates and stuff. But we're almost there. All right, the following year, 2006, Hamas won the Palestinian election and took control of Gaza, the Gaza Strip. Uh, The armed takeover of Gaza by Hamas then prompted Israel to impose a blockade on Gaza in 2007. So why a blockade? Well, apart from the fact that Hamas is a literal terrorist organization, now the government of this, um, the Palestinian people, since 2001, um, you've probably heard about this, approximately 20,000 rockets have hit southern Israel. And this is old data, like 2014 data. So the number is much, much higher. So 20,000 rockets have been hit from uh, Gaza, from Hamas, across at Israel and the vast majority of them launched after Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip in 2005. So you'd think that giving the land, giving more land would lessen the attacks, but it's not been the case. So the blockade is up to keep the terrorists out. Now, I think this is a good point to talk about the loaded phrases that have been floating around in the news and on social media recently. Let's start with the talk of open air prison that the Palestinians have been living in an open air prison. You might have heard heard that around um, social media or on the news. This is referring to the blockade that I just mentioned. So as I said, the blockade is kind of like a security checkpoint. People can go through and up till October 7th, they would go to Israel for work. But you would have to be searched and not just anyone can come in. If there is evidence that you could be a terrorist, guess what? You're not allowed in. Now, side note, Egypt, which is another Arab nation, also has a border with Gaza. And it has completely closed its border, land, air and sea, closed its border with Gaza for the same reason. Even though they are, you know, they're Arab brothers. And it's not because there have been 20,000 rockets launched on Egypt they haven't. It's because they also don't want terrorists in their country. Now, something else you might have heard is that the Palestinians love uh, live under brutal occupation. You might remember I said earlier that there are no Jews living in the Palestinian territories. None. So when people say that Israel is occupied, what they usually mean is that the land, the land that is legally Israel's, is actually Palestinian land occupied by Israel. And so this is brutal. Another thing you might have heard is that Israel has been operating under an apartheid system and doing ethnic cleansing. So, okay, let's start with one of those at a time because that's a lot. The, The apartheid thing first. Now, it might interest you to know that when the land was originally divided between the Israelis and the Arabs, remember back then there was no such thing as a Palestinian, 
any of the Arabs living in the land assigned to Israel were told that they could stay and become citizens, become what's now called Israeli Arabs. So some Arabs stayed and they became Israeli Arabs. And those who didn't want to stay, they had to go and leave and then live in the Palestinian territory. So there are still Israeli Arabs living in Israel and they make up about 20% of the population. They are equal citizens. They serve in the Israeli parliament. Some of them even serve in the military. And as I understand it, one of the most successful businessmen in Israel is an Israeli Arab no apartheid. If there was an apartheid, the Arab people would be second-class citizens. Their participation in society would be extremely limited. They certainly wouldn't be able to be in parliament. And there would be no way that an Arab could be a successful businessman, let alone one of, if not these most successful businessmen in the land. All right, let's now talk about the genocide talk. There is no evidence of genocide against the Palestinian people at all. If the Israelis are committing genocide on the Palestinians, they are doing a terrible job of it by the way they carefully try to avoid any civilian casualties in this war and in previous conflicts. You might have heard about how Hamas hides their munitions and weapons caches under hospitals and launches rockets from schoolyards. Those are literally war crimes, by the way. That's using human shields. And you can look that up in the Geneva Convention if you're interested. So because of this, the IDF will drop pamphlets whenever they are planning to strike a military target, which because of Hamas's tactics is always located in a civilian area. Again, war crime. So they drop pamphlets to tell the residents to leave and they point them in the direction that will lead to safety in those pamphlets. So that's stage one. Then they will call the residents of the building that they're going to target or in the area and they will tell them, you need to get out because this building is now a military target. Get out, basically. Go now. It's going to be um, exploded. (laughs) There's going to be uh, an explosion. So what they're doing there is they're giving another chance for the civilians and the terrorists, by the way, to get out. They're giving them more time. And if that wasn't enough the IDF will then drop what is called a knock bomb and that will shake but not destroy the building in order to let any last minute holdouts leave the building before the strike occurs. That does not sound anything remotely like genocide to me. And finally, let's talk about that chant from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. This is referring to, in the most innocent sense, referring to the removal of all the Jews from Israel and giving the land completely to Hamas and the Palestinian people. In the most evil sense, and in alignment with the Hamas charter, it's a call for the genocide of the Jewish Jewish people. One side of this conflict does have the goal of genocide, but it is not Israel, it is Hamas. And you can look that up if you don't believe me. Now, there is so much more that I could add to this, but I feel like that is enough to bring you up to speed on the situation of Israel, of what's happening in Israel, without burdening you with some of the horrible things that I have read and watched in the lead up to this episode. I don't want to burden you. I want to just inform you so that we can know how to pray and know what to do moving forward and be informed and not be led astray by the media. So 
it is so important that we have a grasp on what is going on, especially now with the rapid decline of unbiased reporting in the media and the Hamas propaganda machine at work. That's another one for you to look up if you're interested. And on top of that, social media full of heartbreaking pictures of war. But please don't allow what is going on to overwhelm you. If your heart is burdened, go to the Lord in prayer. Go to God in prayer and allow your anguish to light a fire in your prayer life. War is absolutely heartbreaking. So please do pray. Pray for peace and for God's will to be done. He knows the best way through this. Peace, Lord, and your will be done, Jesus. Now let me leave you today with a passage of scripture from Psalms 122, verses 6 to 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May, th- may they be secure who love you. Peace be within your wars and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Outside of Sunday podcast. I'll catch you next time. Congrats, you made it to the end of this episode of the Outside of Sunday podcast. Thanks for the support. Become an official outsider by liking and subscribing and leaving a five-star review. You can connect with me on Instagram or Facebook. Just search Outside of Sunday podcast. And don't forget to let someone you know know about this podcast.